Now, is Stephen in the building? That's good. That's a relief. No, that's all good. Uh, we're set up. Okay, we are still reading Jonah 2, but we'll start with actually the Matthew 4 reading. Matthew chapter 4, uh, from verse 1 to 11. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put your Lord your God, to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. This is Jonah, chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the current swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I've been banished from your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Now we're reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Chapter 9 from verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. 
Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, and they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ, as some of them did, and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Rowan. Relieved to see you leave my sermon in place. There we are. Well, uh, here's the problem. The Christians in Corinth were going to pagan temples and sitting down to eat, eating meat sacrificed to idols. Uh, We continue uh, this morning with a sermon series on 1 Corinthians. And that was the problem. They were going to pagan temples and sitting down to eat. And as we've seen in earlier sermons, there were many reasons why they might have wanted to do that. Reasons that we can understand and empathize with. Across the entire Roman Empire, pagan temples were the center of all social, political, intellectual, and cultural life, as well as, of course, religious life. To not attend social functions in the various temples of the various gods and goddesses worshipped in Corinth would have been, in many ways, social death. As a way of life that came naturally to them, the Corinthian Christians they had a theological argument as to why they could continue to do the very thing that they'd always done. And here's their argument. Paul, we are not ignorant 
We have superior knowledge. We know that an idol is nothing at all. It's a statue, for goodness sake. It's not a god. Isn't this precisely what the Old Testament says? The idols of the nations are silver and gold. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. Eyes, but they cannot see. Ears, but they cannot hear, etc., etc. In Christ, we have superior knowledge. We know that there is no God but one God, the only true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Secondly, we know that food does not bring us closer to God. We are neither better off nor worse off, spiritually speaking, for eating meat sacrificed to idols. And thirdly, I am a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ. I have the right to do anything. For the earth is the Lord's and everything in it belongs to him. Therefore, Paul, I have every right to enter a pagan temple. Indeed, I have even more right than the pagans themselves. And to eat there, giving thanks in Jesus' name for whatever I receive. Now, although um, this argument actually is, is sound, although it is essentially true in every particular and at all points, Paul knows that nevertheless it is simply a justification, a rationalization of something that actually is sinful. In actual fact, they as Christians ought not to be doing what it is that they are doing. And two weeks ago, we looked at the first plank in Paul's argument, that behavior is unloving. Consider the brother or sister with a weak conscience. Last week, we looked at uh, how uh, Paul sacrifices even his own freedoms and rights for the sake of the gospel, curtailing freedom voluntarily. And as part of that argument, Paul explained how he had chosen to be fluid with respect to his cultural identity, acting like a Jew when with Jews and acting like a Gentile when with Gentiles, weak in order to win the weak. Verse 22, I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. For as a soldier looks to share in the plunder, a viticulturist looks to share in the wine, a shepherd in the milk, uh, the oxen as it treads out the grain hopes to share in that grain, and the pagan priest in his temple uh, um, will share in the meat sacrificed in worship, so too Paul looks forward to a reward, a prize, a participation in gospel blessings, gospel realities, the glory and wonder yet to be revealed. Paul is seeking to maximize the nature and quality of his participation in the age that is coming after the return of Christ and the resurrection of the dead. And that's very, very clear thinking indeed. And in the light of these thoughts, verses 24 and following might seem like a swerve in the road. Suddenly we're talking about the Olympic Games. 
And we're talking about running and prizes and going into strict training and not training effectively. And, um, but, but training in a way that is calculated to maximize chances of success. But where Paul is taking the Corinthians is toward an understanding of the very great dangers that await them in pagan temples. What danger? Well, actually, the danger of being disqualified, as Paul puts it, from participation in the age that is coming. And in order to understand the dangers, the temptations associated with pagan temples, we need to think clearly about the nature of temptation itself. And uh, Paul teaches us uh, his textbook, as ever, is the Bible, specifically the Old Testament, the history of the nation of Israel in particular. The, the salvation of the Hebrews under the leadership of Moses from Egypt up out of the land of slavery into the promised land, the land of Canaan. The New Testament sees this everywhere as a picture of what it means to be saved. A physical picture of the better, superior, spiritual realities and promises that we have in Jesus Christ. What, what does it mean? Well, look to this picture which foreshadows the gifts that we've been given. So Paul makes an analogy. Hey, don't you understand? These guys were all saved. They were baptized in water. They were baptized in the power of the Holy Spirit. They were communicant Christians. Although the form of these things was prefigured, foreshadowed in Moses the Deliverer, in the Red Sea water baptism, in the cloud of God's presence in the desert, in the satisfying water that they drank because the water was Christ. All of them saved, as we would say. They were all saved. But, Paul tells us, God was not pleased with most of them. Indeed, a trip that could have taken 11 days took 40 years, and not a single adult who was an adult on leaving Egypt actually entered Canaan, the promised land 40 years later, save for Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb. And so in verses 6 to 10, Paul refers to four famous incidents in the Old Testament. And he writes, verse 7, Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. And the incident that uh, Paul is referring to is, of course, the incident of the golden calf, Exodus Chapter 32, Moses had ascended Mount Sinai to be with God, but he was up there for a very long time, longer than expected. And in his absence, the people didn't know what to do. So they appealed to Aaron, Moses' brother, to go into business for them as priest and leader. So Aaron organized the casting of an idol in the form of a calf in doing so breaking the second commandment. 
You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Well, they they made a a golden calf, and the next day they all got up early to sacrifice burnt offerings. That is uh, something sacrificed and then completely burnt up. And they also sacrificed fellowship offerings. Uh, That is a sacrifice that's made but then consumed uh, by the worshippers as a roasted or barbecued meal, as a sacred meal together. And so afterwards... The Bible tells us the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. That's the first incident. The second one, we should not commit sexual sexual immorality, as some of them did, and in one day, 23,000 of them died. The incident that Paul is referring to is recorded, of course, in Numbers 25. There on the plains of Moab the Moabite women invited the Israelite men to participate in the worship of their storm god, Baal. So it is recorded the people ate sacrificial meat and then bowed down before that god. It it is also clear from the account, and it's well known from historical sources, that the worship of Gods and goddesses connected to fertility often involved unrestricted sexual congress. Um, That being, uh, how can I put this delicately? That being in Canaanite thinking, the functional equivalent of a rain dance. Um, Something to provoke the, the gods into doing what you wanted, which was to send rain. Um, If that's not clear, ask me later. (laughs) Verse 9, we should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes. The specific incident that Paul is referring to is recorded for us in Numbers 21, wherein the people grumbled against God and Moses and said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There is no bread. There is no water. And we detest this miserable food. They're referring, of course, to manna. Well, grumbling of such kind was a constant problem. So then Paul says, verse 10, And do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. A a reference uh, um, to various incidents where grumbling emerged, but particularly Numbers 11, wherein God supplied the meat that they craved, but also sent a plague. And so, Paul, in, at this point, Paul generalizes temptations, the temptations that are common to humankind. Paul generalizes, from the history of Israel, temptation essentially into four categories, idolatry, sexual immorality, testing God, and grumbling. 
And these four things are not necessarily categorically different, nor is this an exhaustive list of temptations, but rather four interrelated ways of looking at and understanding sin. So, so let's have a think about each category. Firstly, idolatry. Idolatry, at its most basic level, is worshipping an image, an idol, a statue, as though it were a god. Image-making and image-worshipping, according to the second commandment, which I read earlier, is not to be done. But on, uh, in the plains of Moab, in that incident, the Israelite men literally bowed down and worshipped a statue of the Canaanite storm god, Baal of Peor. At its heart, idolatry is the sin of living with anything or anyone as more important than the Lord God Almighty. Anything that we might place ahead of Jesus Christ. And so, in that we might ever, ever consider anything more important than seeking first the kingdom, living for and serving Jesus as Lord exclusively, wholeheartedly, and single-mindedly, insofar as that is not true, there is an idol in our lives. And we turn all kinds of things into idols. Career, marriage, family, children, experiences, material possessions, wealth, they're typical ones, the idols of our age. We, things we put first and think we're right in putting these first because everybody else does. But So idolatry is anything placed in the position of God ought not to be there. Idolatry can also consist, as in the Exodus 32 incident, the golden calf incident, idolatry can consist of worshipping the Lord but reshaping him, so to speak, into something that he is not. Idolatrous spirituality is any spirituality that is fundamentally about harnessing the spiritual powers that be in order that they might do our bidding. The whole point of Baal worship was to get Baal to do what the worshippers wanted him to do, which was to send rain, and with rain, fertility and fecundity. And so, of course, it is possible to be a Christian, or at least it's possible to call oneself a Christian, and yet have an idolatrous approach to worship. Not not your will be done, Lord, but mine on earth, and also in heaven. Amen. From all of this, it should be abundantly clear that we must watch ourselves most carefully for every idolatrous tendency. Sexual immorality, the term broadly means sex before or outside of marriage. Here are some things that make sexual immorality as a category especially dangerous. Firstly, um, a, a constant problem is that the biblical view of sexuality and marriage has always been, continues to be, and always will be radically at odds with the prevailing views of the cultures around us. In short, if we weren't God's people, there's a whole host of things that we could do that we can't do because we are God's people and he is holy. Therefore, we must be holy. 
That's always been so. The preciousness of our sexuality in establishing our own identities and establishing our identity as the people of God and in the image of Jesus Christ, this makes, at the spiritual level, it makes sexuality a fiercely contested battleground. It is not infrequently said that we, that we get hung up over sexual sin, whereas sexual sin is no different to other types of sin. Actually, the Bible says that's not true. That's not true. Purity and integrity when it comes to sexuality is indeed of special importance in the Bible. Testing God. To test someone in biblical thought is to provoke them. It's to try to force them into some kind of action. To test God, then, means to provoke him so as to test his covenant faithfulness. He says he's faithful. Let's test that. So, for example, God promises to protect us. That's a covenant promise. In our gospel reading today, when the devil tempted Jesus... He was, getting, he was trying to get Jesus to test God with respect to his faithfulness, with respect to his promise to protect him. And that's an evil thing to do because, again, it reverses the polarity of the relationship between us and God and makes us the master, the one who dictates terms, and God the slave. And so then, on the one hand, we must live trusting the promises of God and living in total dependence on him as a result, whilst not testing the promises of God, putting ourselves in the position of judge. Trusting, yes, testing, no. Or to put that another way, waiting is perhaps our most fundamental act of worship. Waiting is the act of worship Adam was called to in Genesis chapter 2. Refusing to wait, therefore, is our most fundamental act of rebellion. Refusing to wait is what Adam and Eve did in Genesis chapter 3. Grumbling. Grumbling is complaining about God rather than to God. The Bible does not expect us to maintain a sunny, cheerful disposition at all times. You may be relieved to know that. No, no, far from it. The, the heroes and the heroines of faith in the Old Testament knew what it was to wrestle with God, to pour out to him their broken hearts and to bring their complaints before him. Um, Grumbling to God, wonderful, indeed, necessary thing to do. Grumbling about God is an entirely different matter. The assumptions of such bitter complaint are always, when we grumble about God, we are always assuming that he is not perfectly and absolutely loving, or that he's not perfectly and absolutely sovereignly in power, or both. And therefore, the assumptions of grumbling are always fundamentally blasphemous, defamation of God's character when we grumble about him. Paul teaches us that the history of the nation of Israel was preserved as a written record for us. 
and for the purpose of warning us in order that we, may, we might not make the same mistakes. For us, on whom the culmination of the ages has come. For we are indeed God's future people now. Having been born of the Spirit, we are being prepared for eternal life. Verse 12. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Or, as it could also be rendered, therefore, the one thinking that he stands must see that he might fall. From context, the meaning is this. So, uh, you're a committed, baptized, filled with the Spirit, communicant member of your local church. Wonderful. But you must understand that it is still possible for you to be on the last day on the outside where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping and shouting, let me in, let me in, but to no avail. You must understand that. You may not make it still, into Canaan land. Many will say to me on that day, Jesus said, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. The parable of the sower teaches how many who initially call on the name of the Lord Jesus will be diverted by trouble, persecution, worries and anxieties, pleasures and the deceitfulness of wealth. They won't make it. If if your right hand, your right eye, your right foot causes you to sin, cut it off, says the Lord Jesus. It is better for you to enter eternal life maimed than the fires of hell whole. And Paul has already explained in this very letter, 1 Corinthians, that those who are unrepentant with respect to idolatry and its concurrent behaviors, sexual immorality, theft, drunkenness, slander, fraud, and so forth, such people will not inherit the kingdom of God. Sin is dangerous because it is deceptive, habit-forming, and conscience-scarring. Paul is not teaching us that these sins are unforgivable. Far from it. Rather, Paul is reminding them, reminding us that those who insist on holding on to idols have no hands left with which to hold on to God. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Those who cling to worthless idols can't also hang on to God. We hold on to God with both hands or not at all. Certainly, um, in the 28 years that I have uh, been a Christian, I have seen many, many people let go of fellowship with God and with his people in order that they might hold on to something else. The other thing to know about sin uh, um, that Paul knows is that even where and when it is forgiven, it can only come at a terrible cost. Scripture promises us that when we sin, there will be consequences. 
for our Father in heaven will discipline us. No discipline is pleasant, but there's no schoolroom quite like affliction for training in righteousness. Further, Peter reminds us that the devil prowls around looking, uh, looking for somebody to devour like a roaring lion. David's life was written for our instruction. He committed adultery with Bathsheba and indeed murdered, had, had her husband Uriah the Hittite killed. David pleaded with God for forgiveness and was forgiven straight away. But the consequences of that sin were truly awful, throwing his own family into chaos for a generation, directly leading to a civil war and the loss of thousands of lives, causing incredible damage, not just in his life and in Bathsheba's, but in many others. We are very mistaken if we are not very frightened at the thought of sinning against God. For our God is a consuming fire. Paul concludes this section with, Therefore, dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. All sin can be forgiven. It doesn't matter what we've done. Every sin can be forgiven. David was forgiven. David was forgiven by the blood of Christ, the lamb who was slain, the sacrifice made on our behalf before the beginning of time. David was forgiven. And insofar as we keep on depending on the cross, putting our trust in the grace of God, keeping on asking Jesus to save us, he is faithful and always saves those who take refuge in him. Because we are sinners, this is our consolation, that we can trust in God's forgiveness, that God will forgive us not seven times, but 77 times. And I say this as a consolation, as a comfort, But we we should really take note of the fact that the consolation that we have in the cross is not the consolation that Paul offers here. His message is not, oh, temptation is a terrible thing, but don't worry, you can always be forgiven. That's not his consolation. No, no, rather Paul's consolation is this, verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to humankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. And when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. That's the consolation that Paul offers. Yes, temptation is a terrible thing, but don't worry you can fully master it in Christ. And I know these things to be true, not just because they're written in the Bible, but also because they are part of my routine, everyday, lived experience. If ever I might pray, Father, please give me the strength to... whatever it might be, 
I know that, often to my great disappointment, he has. He has immediately given me the strength to regulate my thoughts, hold my tongue, turn the channels on the television, or alter my path, or whatever it might be. I'm not suggesting that I'm leading a sinless life. Far be it. But I do know that if ever I ask, he is faithful. He always gives strength to those who ask. In in evangelical circles, we often preach the, the truth that the bride of Christ in making herself ready for the coming age. The bride of Christ, that is, that is the church, the followers of Jesus Christ. Um, we often preach the truth that what she's doing now is that she's learning more and more how to depend upon the grace of God, to lean solely on the cross, to look only to Jesus in order that she might be saved. We, we are less comfortable with, and so perhaps we preach less often, the flip side truth, that the bride of Christ, that is us, the church, in making herself ready for the coming age. What she is about is that she's learning more and more how to resist temptation and master sin through self-control as a gift of the Holy Spirit. This is her other work. We close by remembering that the subject at hand is this. Eating food sacrificed to idols in pagan temples. Paul knows that there were many, many temptations for Christians who entered therein. Not just tasty food, but many, many other things that were done in pagan temples. The lesson for this week, be wise about temptation and adjust your course accordingly. And the Lord be with you all.